Chapter 7 of An Earthman on Venus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. Salem, Las Vegas, Nevada. An Earthman on Venus by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter 7 A Hunting Trip. My radio set was a failure. I could not hear Torin, and he could not hear me. All my labor of four months in the laboratories of Mooney had gone to waste. Perhaps the Peruvian scientists were right, and the Earth scientists were wrong, and insects did not communicate by radio waves after all. Yet I was unwilling to give up. So I begged Torin to talk in as many different ways as he could, and at last was rewarded by a slight squeak in my earphones. Then I myself tried, talking now loud, now soft, now high, now low, until at last, when I yelled a particularly high pitch, Toron reported that he too had heard. The earth scientists were vindicated. Communication was established. The sounds had been received and sent at the very shortest wavelength within the powers of my apparatus so I now determined to reduce that wavelength still further. Late into the night I worked frantically, and Toron, catching some of my contagious enthusiasm, worked with me. At first, I experimented with various sizes and shapes of coil antenna, but I was confronted with weak signals of short wavelength. Any change in my apparatus, which reduced my wavelength, also reduced my receptivity and any change which increased my receptivity likewise increased my wavelength. So I was between the devil and the deep sea. Finally, I tried a condenser antenna without plates, two rods, and then we were rewarded by speech, clear, distinct, and unmistakable. We ceased our work, exhausted, but before turning in for the night, Toron taught me how to say in Peruvian language the following sentence. The planet Minos sends to the planet Poros, and informs Poros that Minos was right. Communication between Peruvians is electrical. I told him that my name was Miles S. Cabot, a fact which I had previously had no means of imparting to anyone. Then we separated for the night. The next morning, the committee were astounded at my success. Although I was most anxious to get back to Watusa at once, the committee insisted on my remaining and demonstrating my apparatus, and this took several weeks more. But at last I was permitted to return. On my arrival, I was informed that the girl was still there, so at once I requested an interview. At first, she refused to receive me, but Doggo, who acted as go-between, finally succeeded in arousing her interest by hinting to her that the scientist at Mooney had discovered that I was really a Coopian after all, and a very handsome one at that, now that they had succeeded in completely removing my former deformities. So at last, she reluctantly consented. Apparently, she had heard no news of the great doings at Mooney. I planned for this meeting with even more care and application than I had spent upon my radio apparatus. Everything that Doggo and I were to say and do was carefully rehearsed. My speeches, of course, had to be learned by rote, for I had, as yet, no opportunity to study the spoken language of Poros. We built a head frame of heavy wire concealed in my hair, 
and arranged the phones so that they would lie unobserved under the locks which covered my ears. The batteries, tubes, tuning apparatus, and one rod were on my back, carried by a belt, and hidden beneath my toga. The other rod and a dummy mate to it were affixed to my forehead and camouflaged to resemble Coopian antenna. My small microphone was located between my collarbones, where the front edge of my toga just concealed it. I could have mounted both of my real rods on my forehead, but that would have reduced the capacity enough so as to have increased my wavelength out of the required range. Hence, the seemingly unnecessary complication of my arrangement. The need for tuning apparatus requires some explanation. Peruvians tune for the slight difference in individual wavelength by moving their antenna. But this, of course, was not practicable to me, so I employed for this purpose a microscopically small variable condenser on my belt. To complete my disguise, we even went to the extent of fastening artificial wings to my back so that, except for the peculiarity of my hands and feet, I looked and sounded like a real Coopian. Then we were ushered into the presence of the lady. She was a beautiful and regal figure as she sat poised upon a richly upholstered dais, garbed in the Grecian simplicity of the Coopian national costume. In her arms snuggled a pet math lab, which I noted with a twinge of jealousy. She was unmistakably taken aback by the change in my appearance, and only a hasty glance at my handsome feet convinced her that she was not being made the victim of a practical joke. But she quickly recovered her dignity and frigidly awaited our advances. Doggo opened the conversation. Gracious lady, he said, Miles Cabot and I pay our most humble respects. As you can see, he is now a full-fledged Coopian, with a minor exception of fingers and toes. The object of this interview is that he may reassure you and apologize for the fright which he caused you when last you two met. Then I stepped forward. In spite of my transformation, she cringed a bit, I must admit. Evidently, she still remembered my horrible beard, for she kept studying my face inquiringly. I spoke my memorized piece as follows. Gracious lady, I am your everlasting slave, from whom you need fear no harm. And then she spoke. The sweetest, most tinkling, silvery voice that I have ever heard. Somehow, I had known that her voice must be like that. Of course, I did not yet understand the spoken language of this planet, but I stood enchanted. Doggo afterwards wrote out for me the substance of her remarks, which were that she was thrown in contact with me against her will, but that if I comported myself circumspectly, she would condescend to tolerate my acquaintance, or words to that effect. Never once did her cold manner relax, and yet I fancied the merest twinkle of interest in her heaven-blue eyes. We withdrew, fully satisfied that an opening had been made. Doggo at once wanted to report the occurrence to headquarters, whereas I insisted that the affair concerned no one but myself. Why should headquarters care? I asked. His reply astounded me. It took paper and pencil and a great deal of explaining before I finally grasped the horrible fact that the Coopian girl had been brought to Watusa so that the Formians might breed us like cattle in an attempt to perpetuate my peculiar species. No wonder that she still revolted from me, in spite of my more presentable appearance. Teach me to talk, I pleaded on paper, in order that I may explain to her that she has nothing to fear from me and that I will guard her honor with my life. Doggo cannot understand my sentiments, but he had enough friendship for me so that 
he respected them on my account. Accordingly, he set to work instructing me, chiefly by making me read aloud and take dictation. The language turned out to be phonetic after all. In fact, it is very like Pittman shorthand, although not quite so compact. As I already knew the written language pretty thoroughly, I made rapid progress in the radiated language, so that in a very few weeks I became really proficient. Now I learned the names Cupian and Formian, and a great many other words which I have used earlier in this narrative, although only their written forms were known to me at that time. I was now able to write my name phonetically. Heretofore I had used for my name the plural of the character for their unit of measure, stad, a poor pun for miles. Every few days I saw the lady briefly. At first our conversations were very formal, consisting on my part almost entirely of set speeches committed to memory. But gradually, I became able to understand her and to improvise a bit. One afternoon, about fifty days after my return from Mooney, I said to Doggo, doubtless apropos of something that was in my lesson, Tell me, have you any name of your own? I have called you Doggo right along, and you haven't seemed to mind it, so it has never occurred to me before to ask your real name. No, he replied, I have no name. That is why I felt highly honored when you called me one. Coopians have names, but we Formians, except in the case of our Queen Formis, have merely numbers. These numbers are in three parts, the first part representing the year of hatching, the second, the month of hatching, and the third, the serial registration number of the individual. Thus, my number, 344-2-18, I was the 20th Formian hatched in the second month of the 484th year following the Great Peace. Let me explain here that a year on Poros is made up of 20 months of 12 days each. A day is 12 parths, or about 22 and a half earth hours, so that a parth is about 1 hour and 52 and a half minutes of earth time. I would have asked him then what was the meaning of the other and smaller numbers on his back, but I was more interested in learning about the beautiful lady. It was strange that I had never asked her name of either herself or Doggo but I had always called her Gracious Lady, with never a thought of any further title. If Coopians have names, what then is the name of the Gracious Lady? At this question, Doggo's antenna quivered with suppressed excitement. Never ask that question of anyone, he adjured me. Do not even ask the lady herself. There are reasons of state against your being told. To relieve this strained situation, I changed the subject, saying, Oh, by the way, it has occurred to me to ask the cause of the accident to our airplane on the day of my capture. Whereat, Doggo, mollified, explaining as follows, Our airplanes are stabilized entirely by gyroscopes. I interjected, On my planet Minos, we depend upon the shape and design of the wings. Be that as it may, Doggo continued, we use gyroscopes. On the particular occasion in question, the gyroscopes broke down thus crippling the plane as completely as if it had lost a wing, and so bringing it to the ground. As we were on the subject, I asked, What is the reason for the peculiar shape of your flying machines? For I had noticed that they were built with long, flexible tails, so that the general appearance was that of a dragonfly. Oh, Doggo explained, the tail is the fighting element of a Peruvian airship. The green cows 
whose milk furnishes such an important part of the diet of us formians, are preyed upon by the enormous bees, such as the one who fell into the same spider web with you shortly after your arrival on this planet. These bees are chiefly noted for their honey, and for the peculiar shrill noise which they radiate, on which account they are called whistling bees. Airplanes exist for the sole purpose of combating these predatory creatures. By one of the terms of the Treaty of Muni, the Cupians are not allowed to possess planes, and accordingly, all of the policing of the air has to be done by the Imperial Air Navy of the Formians. This city, Watusi, where we are now staying, is the barracks for the Air Navy, and contains nothing else which accounts for the absence of visiting Cupians here. I am a high-ranking naval officer, an Eclat, whereas the one you call Satan is only a Puta, thus explained Doggo. I gathered that the ranks of Eclat and Puta corresponded respectively to Commander and Lieutenant Junior Grade on Earth. I, having done my share to relieve the tension caused by my asking of Doggo the name of the Coopian girl, he now in turn invited me to go on a bee hunt which I accepted purely for politeness' sake, as I did not care to travel far from the lady, but perhaps such a diversion would be just as well until I had made more progress in mastering the spoken language. So about a week after the conversation above related, I embarked with two young officers for a part of the country where it had been reported that several bees were preying upon the flocks. Doggo remained behind at Watusa, because of certain important military duties. The trip took almost a day, and we put up for the night at a small farming village. The farmer ants displayed a true rustic interest in my peculiarities, which the two young Bardputas, or ensigns, took great pleasure in showing off. My fame had evidently reached this community, but with it a myth to the effect that my electrical antenna could discharge not only speech, but also death-dealing lightning at will. I treasured this piece of information. It might come in handy sometime. Early the next morning, we started forth to the field where the most recent bovicides had taken place, and concealed our plane in some woods by the edge of the field. We had not long to wait, for soon we were rewarded by a whistling sound at which we sailed out to meet the enemy, the nation's air navies, grappling in the central blue of which Tennyson sings, can't hold a candle to a battle between an ant flyer and a whistling bee. At the start, we circled each other, each looking for an opening and trying to get on the back of the other. In this game, the airplane had a certain advantage for which it was provided with grappling hooks both above and below and could work its tail either up or down to strike at its antagonist whereas the bee, of course, had legs only on the bottom side and could bend his sting only downward. Thus, even if the bee should alight on top of the plane, the fight would remain fairly even, but if the plane should alight on top of the bee, it would be all over for the poor bee. In addition, the plane had its fuel tank and its control levers located way to the front as far as possible out of reach of the sting of the bee but the bee had the advantage of unified control. That is to say, one of the ant ensigns flew the machine, while the other manipulated the flying tail, whereas the bee controlled both his sting 
and his wings with a single brain. Round and round we circled, first the plane on top and then the bee. The two young ant men were accomplished flyers, so that loop the loops, tail spins, direct drops, and other maneuvers were possible, and it took all these expedients to elude our antagonist. But at last the bee made some slight misplay, and instantly we were upon his back with the grappling hooks sunk in his sides, and in a moment our fighting tail was driven home and the battle was over. The grappling hooks were then released and the carcass cast to the ground. Upon our alighting shortly thereafter, one of the ant-men exclaimed, We certainly are in luck, for there is the bee's honey-pot. And sure enough, there in front of us was a silk-lined opening in the ground, more than a yard in diameter. And now I learned whence came the honey, which the Formians had frequently served me. For it seems that these huge bees, as large as horses, burrow into the ground to a depth of ten or twelve feet, line the hole with silk of their own spinning, and then use it as a reservoir for their most excellent honey. This, in spite of their carnivorous proclivities, is almost identical to the honeys made by bees on earth. One of the bar putas now uncoiled a long hose from the airship and stuck the end into the honey reservoir while the other started up the motor. And soon we were filling one of our spare tanks with the luscious syrup, of which there were about 100 gallons in the hole. But we had made one mistake, for this was not the hole of our late victim. It belonged instead to another bee who suddenly appeared angrily on the scene. If we had not been warned by his whistling, we should have been out of luck. And as it was, we barely had time to scramble aboard and rise from the ground before he was upon us. Then began a repetition of our former fight, but with a difference, as we soon noticed, for this bee was a master of aerial tactics. Once, when we were nearly upon his back, he darted ahead and then rose and halted, so that we nearly drove our ship into the point of his sting. But fortunately, our pilot caught the idea of the maneuver almost before it was executed, and quickly threw us into a left-hand spiral, thus not only escaping the deadly sting, but also giving the bee a bad bruise with one of our wings as we shot by. A move like this would, of course, be rendered entirely impossible by the steadying influence of the gyroscopes, were it not for the fact that the control apparatus is so arranged that the gyroscopes maintain their position while the whole rest of the machine spirals around them. For a while thereafter we had the advantage, and finally, by a clever shift descended squarely upon the back of the bee, but just as our hooks were about to take hold, the bee again darted forward and looped in front of us, turning over at the same time so that he was right side up above us. Then, as we passed under him, he dropped upon the front of our machine out of reach of our tail. My, but that was a well-executed move, one of the bar putas exclaimed. I never saw a whistling bee do that before. Airmen are always appreciative of a clever opponent on Poros as on Earth, and even in defeat. These were the last words my friend ever spoke, for at that moment he was impaled by the enemy. The next stroke punctured the fuel tank. The other Ant-Man jumped, and the plane crashed to Earth, pinning me beneath it. I lay stunned for a few moments, and then the angry bee bunted the wreck to one side, pulling me from beneath it, and brandishing his sting above me, preparatory to driving it into my vitals. End of chapter 7